Ukrainian leaders are asking for more air defense systems following the latest round of Russian drone strikes on Kyiv and other major cities. It's Monday, October 17th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, why some Democrats are distancing themselves from President Biden on issues like immigration. You know, when the president decided he was gonna do something dumb on this and change the rules, you know, that would create a bigger crisis, I told him he was wrong. Also this hour, with the world watching to see if recent protests will make any social change in Iran, a prominent Iranian-American believes Iranians want their current regime to go. All we have to do is provide them with all kinds of support that would strengthen the hands of the people against the tyrants that they have to overthrow. And how community colleges are providing free courses to students trying to learn skilled trades. Cloudy this morning, showers this afternoon in the 60s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Ukrainian government says at least three people are dead after a series of drone strikes hit the capital, Kyiv, today. So far, 18 people have been pulled out of collapsed buildings, with at least two still trapped in the rubble. Three people have been hospitalized. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports the stepped-up military action comes several days after more than a dozen civilians were killed in an attack carried out by Russia. Kyiv was shaken awake by more explosions this morning. Around 7 a.m., the first strikes could be heard from downtown. The mayor's office says that several residential buildings were damaged in the blast. The head of Ukraine's presidential staff, Andriy Yermak, says the strikes were from kamikaze drones. He wrote, quote, Russians think it will help them, but such actions look like agony. And he reiterated calls to the West to provide Ukraine with more air defense systems to protect from future attacks. He said, quote, we have no time for slow actions. The attack comes a week after the capital was hit by several Russian missiles and nationwide strikes. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, Kyiv, Ukraine. A suspect in a string of killings in Stockton, California, has been arrested and is expected to be arraigned Tuesday. As old Dahlstrom Ekman from member station KQED reports, the man was taken into custody by police on Saturday. Stockton police say they arrested 43-year-old Wesley Brownlee early Saturday morning. Brownlee, police say, was dressed in black, had a mask around his neck, and was armed with a gun when they made the arrest. Stockton Mayor Kevin Lincoln said the public played a key role in helping arrest the suspect. Thank you for exercising your voice. Thank you for submitting the hundreds of tips that have come in on a daily basis. Brownlee is suspected of killing five men in the Stockton area since July and another in Oakland last year. He's also accused of wounding one woman. Investigators say ballistics tests and video evidence link the crimes. But so far, there's no suspected motive for the attacks. For NPR News, I'm Azul Dahlstrom-Ekman in San Francisco. Florida's agriculture sector is struggling in the aftermath of Hurricane Ian. The storm caused major damage to the state's cattle industry and vegetable farms. Citrus grower Roy Petway estimates that at least 40 percent of his crop is now unusable. To start having groves that were heavily replanted and, and owners that were really looking forward to this year, this, this makes it even more devastating for them and for us. Um, and this will between all the stresses with citrus greening and such, this is the kind of event that will push growers out. Citrus is big business in Florida with more than 375,000 acres in the state devoted to oranges, grapefruit, and tangerines. 
This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Teachers are on strike today in Haverhill and Malden, even though teacher strikes are illegal in Massachusetts. Classes are canceled today in both cities. Contract talks in the communities between teachers' unions and school leaders failed to avert a strike. WBUR's Sivan Lee reports the main issue is money. Both Haverhill and Malden's unions argue that teachers' wages have been suppressed and that their compensation is just not fair and adequate. And especially in Haverhill, um, the vice president of the Haverhill Education Association, Barry Davis, told me Sunday evening that there's 157 open positions in the district right now and that Haverhill's losing good teachers and they're going elsewhere to make more money. In Haverhill, city leaders say there will be more contract negotiations today. In Malden, the school committee is asking for mediation help from the state. Warmer winters are threatening the water quality of more than 40 states, with New England particularly at risk. Abigail Giles has more on a University of Vermont study which explains that warmer winters caused by climate change are leading to more rain. We have rich soils full of phosphorus and nitrogen. In the past, they'd stay put under the snow until spring. But Carol Adair with the University of Vermont says that's no longer the case. Throughout Vermont and throughout the Northeast, we're seeing something like five or six rain on snow events a year. And relative to the rest of the country, that's pretty high. Adair says her research shows these events are more polluting than big summer rainstorms. She teamed up with colleagues at several universities to map where these rain on snow events are happening most and which places have the most nutrients to shed. New England is at risk, but she says there are things farmers can do to help. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Abigail Giles. The lights are back on for most Waltham residents this morning. A power surge over the weekend knocked out electricity in part of the city. Transformers caught fire and traffic lights stopped working as a result of the incident on Saturday. Eversource tells the Boston Globe less than a quarter of its customers were affected by the outage. The cause of the surge is under investigation. A town vault in Barnstable that caused headaches during the September primary election is still out of order. But officials there believe it won't cause another issue. Last month, the town vault with thousands of ballots inside could not be opened. That delayed in-person voting and pushed back the closing of polls. Barnstable's town clerk tells the Cape Cod Times she's planning to use other vaults in the town hall to keep the ballots safe. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. The Patriots topped the Browns 38-15 yesterday in Cleveland. The Pats will be home next Monday to play the Chicago Bears. And the Bruins will be at the Garden tonight to skate with the Florida Panthers. In your forecast, cloudy this morning with showers likely this afternoon. Temperatures today will be in the lower 60s. Some more showers possible overnight, maybe even a thunderstorm low in the 50s. Morning showers possible tomorrow, otherwise cloudy. It'll be in the lower 60s. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 7.08. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Capital One, offering their premium travel card, VentureX. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. This is Morning Morning Edition Edition from NPR NPR News. News. I'm Rachel Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm Rachel Martin. Good morning. China is the second largest economy in the world. So when the ruling Communist Party gets together to decide its priorities for the next five years, the world pays attention. The 20th National Congress of the Communist Party of China now officially begins. All right, so that was obviously an error on our part. Uh, We're talking in just a few minutes to John Kirby, White House National Security Coordinator for Strategic Communications. And that is because the mayor of Kyiv says that Russia fired drones packed with explosives at the center of Ukraine's capital again today. Officials say at least three people were killed. Volodymyr Greistan was at a train station in central Kyiv when he spotted one of the drones overhead. Greistan says police fired at the drone with assault rifles when it suddenly turned toward them and they ran underground. The deadly days-long Russian bombardment has knocked out power and water supplies in several cities. In response, the White House is speeding up shipments of air defense systems to Ukraine, part of an additional authorization of $725 million in arms and equipment for Ukraine. Now, John Kirby is with us. He is the White House National Security Coordinator for Strategic Communications. Uh, Admiral, uh, Russia is expected to hold its annual nuclear forces drills soon, and this year it feels a lot more ominous considering Vladimir Putin's threat to use nuclear weapons. What will the U.S. be looking for to ensure that this isn't something more than just drills? Well, we're certainly going to be monitoring this exercise, as we do every year. A, this is an exercise that the Russians could perform annually uh, to, uh, to test and evaluate their strategic, uh, uh, nuclear capabilities. And again, we'll watch it as closely a- as we can. Everything we have seen to date tells us that this is a, 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 a an exercise that will be conducted normally, uh, within the bounds of the way Russia has done it in the past. Um, and, uh, we do expect that as a part of this exercise, they'll be moving some of these strategic assets around. Uh, but again, we see no indication that, uh, that either this exercise or in other contexts, uh, the President Putin has decided to move forward with the use of a, a nuclear mm. weapon or weapon of mass destruction inside Ukraine. I just remember the last time Russia was running drills, that was uh, right before they invaded Ukraine. So I think maybe that, that worries uh, a lot of people, Admiral. Yeah, no, look, I understand that. And that's why I said we're going to be watching this exercise as close as, as we can. But, it, what, but, but the indications we have now... Uh, are that this will be conducted uh, within the normal bounds, very similar to exercises that they have had uh, that they had last year. I would I would like to just care, the, the exercises we saw last year in advance of the invasion were not just these nuclear exercises; they were other more conventional exercises too that did that did you know prepare their forces for the ultimate invasion. How would the U.S. deter a dangerous nuclear power from further escalation? How would that work? Well, I, th- there's a, a a variety of means that we would use uh, to try to deter the use. We have uh, already made it very clear publicly and privately to the Russians that should they move forward with a weapon of mass destruction or a a nuclear weapon of whatever size, uh, that there would be uh, severe consequences uh, for for Russia, for the Kremlin, uh, and of course there would be consequences across uh, the region. Uh, again, we're watching this very, very closely. Um, we, uh, we have seen nothing that would uh, cause us to change our strategic deterrent posture. And a change in our posture would be another way uh, of trying to help uh, deter such use. But again, we've just not seen 
any indication that, that 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 decision has been taken or that they're even preparing for the possibility of, of that sort of a decision. And I know Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, keeps calling for more sanctions and, and more weapons, specifically long-range Patriot missiles. Is that something, uh, uh, Admiral, that uh, the U.S. is prepared at any point to say yes to? I don't want to get ahead of decisions that we haven't made yet with respect to capabilities to Ukraine. As you uh, said just before we started talking, last week we announced yet another package of security assistance, our 23rd. This brings to more than $17 billion, uh, the kinds of security assistance that we've given to Ukraine just in the military front alone since the invasion. Um, And that's significant. We're going to continue to do that. And we are doing it in lockstep with the Ukrainians. eh? We talked to them almost every day about what their needs are. As you heard, when President Biden spoke to President Zelensky last week, he promised that we would continue to provide air defense capabilities to Ukraine, and we will do that. We've been doing it, quite frankly, since the very beginning of the war when we were starting to send Stinger missiles and ultimately ended up over 1,400 of them were provided to Ukraine, as well as helping them acquire an S-300 system and other long-range defense systems. In fact, just last week, Secretary Austin was in Brussels meeting with the contact group for Ukraine, 50 some odd nations, and nations like Germany and Spain have agreed to now pony up uh, various levels of air defense capabilities uh, to the Ukrainians that they'll be able to use in, in relatively short fashion. And is the Biden administration still committed to sending aid to Ukraine for as long as Russia is attacking or occupying Ukraine? President Biden has been crystal clear. We're going to continue to support Ukraine for as long as it takes. And one last thing, Admiral, OPEC's decision to cut oil production seems to be a clear signal to the White House on where the Middle East stands in this conflict. How will the U.S. respond to that? The president wants to take a look at what his options are. You heard him say there'll be consequences, and there will be. He wants to review this bilateral relationship and make sure that it's actually performing in the best interest of the American people and our national security. So he wants a a wide-ranging, comprehensive review. He wants to include members of Congress in that. Again, I won't get ahead of the president's uh, thinking, but but, but he'll be presented options to consider. White House National Security Coordinator for Strategic Communications, John Kirby. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Tonight in Ohio, Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan meets Republican author and venture capitalist J.D. Vance on the debate stage. Their second and final encounter is the latest episode in a fairly contentious Senate debate season. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben has been tracking it all, and she joins us now. Good morning, Danielle. Hey there, Rachel. Many of these Senate debates have really been up in the air until the last minute this election season. How come? Right. Yeah. Earlier this fall, it was a really slow debate season to start. Candidates on both sides of the aisle for a lot of offices just weren't agreeing to debate each other. Now, at this point, you do have a lot of candidates in these Senate races who have agreed to debate, albeit perhaps only once in some cases. Uh, In Nevada's Senate race, it appears a debate just flat out won't happen. And there are a bunch of reasons why a candidate might want to limit debates. One is that they just see that there's more to lose than gain in a debate. I mean, given that uh, clips from debates can be shared over and over online, if you Mm -hmm. make a gaffe, it can just be super costly. And plus, with a lot of really entrenched voters, you just might decide you might not win many over, even with a good debate performance. But... Even with these drawbacks, some candidates have ultimately decided to come out and debate because if they don't, their opponent can call them scared or cowardly. And furthermore, if your race is really tight, and a lot of these are, 
you may just hope that a debate could push you to a win, if only by a little bit. Yeah. So we're in the thick of it right now, Senate debates. There was one Friday night in Georgia. Tonight, there's the one I mentioned in Ohio, also happening in Florida and Colorado. And obviously, each of these races is different. But are there common threads in the debates that we have seen thus far? Yes, very, very many. I mean, in general, you're seeing a lot of similar attacks by party here. For example, Democrats are talking a lot about abortion, casting their GOP opponents as too extreme on the subject. But Democrats also, interestingly, have been uh, have felt okay distancing themselves from President Biden and even criticizing him. Here's Democratic Senator Mark Kelly in an Arizona debate. I've been strong on border security, and I've stood up to Democrats when they're wrong on this issue. It sounds including, like including, by the way, yes, including the president. You know, when the president decided he was going to do something dumb on this and change the rules, you know, that would create a bigger crisis. You know, I told him he was wrong. Now, relatedly, Republicans are working to tie Democrats to Biden, who isn't very popular, uh, particularly in some of these really close states. And Republicans are also attacking Democrats on inflation and the economy and casting Democrats as soft on crime. Now, many of these issues really are important to people. And by I don't mean to diminish them by pointing out that they come up over and over, but the fact that all these debates are so similar, it's a sign of how the two parties really have fundamentally different ideas at this point, and they see defeating each other as existential to the country. And in addition, getting people to vote based on fear is an effective strategy, probably. Yeah. Yeah. So those are some of the common themes. What about the differences? I mean, the personal attacks we're seeing do kind of seem pretty notable. Oh, yeah, very much. And there was a notable personal attack in the last Ohio debate where uh, Democrat Tim Ryan referenced a recent Trump rally in Ohio where Trump celebrated J.D. Vance's support by saying that J.D. Vance is, quote, kissing my ass. Now, Tim Ryan in the debate went after Vance on this. After Trump took J.D. Vance's dignity from him on the stage in Youngstown, J.D. Vance got back up on stage and said, start shaking his hand, take a picture, saying, hey, aren't we having a great time here tonight? I don't know anybody I grew up with. I don't know anybody I went to high school with that would allow somebody to take their dignity like that and then get back up on stage. Now, one other thing we're watching is how candidates are framing national issues for their own statewide races. For example, in Wisconsin, Republican Senator Ron Johnson and Democratic Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes were asked about abortion in terms of the fact that Wisconsin now has an abortion ban in effect. And Johnson responded by saying that he wants a state referendum. We all agree that society has responsibility to protect life. But at what point does society have the responsibility to protect life in the womb? I want we the people to decide that. I would have one vote like every other Wisconsin citizen. Hmm. So big picture, Danielle, I mean, do debates make a difference in how voters make their decisions come elected day? I mean, in broad strokes, often the consensus is, is that these debates don't move voters much. I mean, barring a massive gap from either candidate. And also, like I said, there just aren't a lot of persuadable voters. But it can potentially hurt to not do a debate and also... In these debates, you might be working to mobilize people, not just persuade people. So candidates will be trying to do that. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben. Thank you so much. Thank you.
This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up on WBUR's Morning Edition, many parents seeking mental health services for their children are denied treatment by insurance companies. In desperation, they're turning to public insurance like Medicaid. And the sound of quickly melting ice. Scientists are collecting audio from underwater microphones to help determine how quickly glaciers are melting. It's 720. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Ad Club Women's Leadership Forum in person on October 24th. Hear from influential speakers and visionary women driving positive change in the world. Tickets at adclub.org. The law firm of Nutter, McLennan and Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at nutter.com. And Greater Boston Stage Company's world premiere play, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, a haunting humorous treat, opens Friday in Stoneham. Tickets at greaterbostonstage.org. I'm Peter O'Dowd. Susan Rogers is a longtime record producer who's worked with Prince and Bare Naked Ladies. She's also a neuroscientist. Your brain wants something. It's craving a certain kind of treat, and it knows from past experience the records in your playlist that are going to deliver that particular treat. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Patchy fog and cloudy this morning with a high near 62. This afternoon, showers are likely. Tonight, temperatures fall to a low around 55. Rain overnight, then tomorrow, showers likely again in the morning and a high near 61. Sunny on Wednesday with a high near 58. Right now, it's 50 degrees in Boston. This Wednesday at WBUR City Space, a conversation about concussions in sports. It's not just athletes in the NFL who face the threat of head injuries. Everyone from soccer players to NASCAR drivers are also at risk. Magna Chakrabarty will talk with medical experts and Brianna Scurry, World Cup champion and Olympic gold medalist. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It's 722. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Linda Mood Bell Learning Centers, providing instruction for students to catch up or get ahead. Live, online, or in-person programs for reading, comprehension, and math. lindamoodbell.com slash NPR. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at raymondjames.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Rachel Martin. We know a lot about the effects of climate change, and we can see the impact it's having. But what does climate change sound like? Some scientists who study glaciers have been listening they use underwater microphones known as hydrophones. Grant Dean, a research oceanographer at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, says that gives them a deeper insight into how fast the glaciers are melting. I think the audio offers advantages that are difficult to get elsewhere. Pictures won't tell you what's going on under the water. What does a glacier sound like? This is the Hans Glacier in southwestern Spitsburg between Norway and Greenland. 
when you put a hydrophone in the water, you hear all kinds of things. You hear the ice melting, sure. You also hear ice breaking off the ice cliff. And our very first job was to catalog those different sources, understand their properties, and make sure that we can distinguish one source from another. So what does that rapid drip sound teach scientists about glacier melt? Here's Oregon State University glaciologist Aaron Pettit. I can listen to these sounds and actually get a feel for what the glacier is doing just from listening. And if we listen enough and we know something about the glacier behavior, we can link that together and think of it as a whole system and how the sound can give us clues to changes before our eyes might notice. And deciphering those audio clues could mean getting more accurate forecasts of sea level rise, says Grant Dean. If we can count the bubbles being released into the water from the noises that they make, we can figure out how quickly the ice is melting. We need to understand these things if we're going to predict sea level rise accurately. Sea level rise presents a serious problem. Dean says even a small increase will make that problem worse. At least we know the scientists are listening. If you have children with mental health problems, one of the most reliable ways to get care is through government insurance, such as Medicaid. But qualifying for it can require making some tough choices. That was the case for one Rhode Island woman who struggles with getting care for Rose, her nine-year-old. NPR's Yuki Noguchi has her story as part of our ongoing series on medical debt with Kaiser Health News. Rose is the youngest of Colleen O'Donnell's three children. She's like really funny and beautiful and creative. Several years ago, Rose started acting aggressively. It was a sign of a worsening mood disorder. I couldn't get her on the bus to go to school. That was a real struggle. And then what do you do when you have a kid that won't go to school that no one else can take care of because it's unsafe? Rose had two forms of private insurance through each parent's job, but neither covered her care. Only Medicaid would pay for the care Rose needed. So O'Donnell, a single mother, quit her job as a school nurse to cut her income in order to qualify for public insurance. Oh, my God. Having Medicaid has made everything easier. I don't have co-pays. I don't have to wait for the insurances to fight it out to see who's going to pay for what. I don't have to worry about getting collections notice. I don't, you know, the stress level of, of relief there is huge. But it came at serious cost. Without a job, O'Donnell took out a $22,000 second mortgage to pay for living expenses. Qualifying for Medicaid means you live right around the poverty level, right? Which means that I'm also not generating any sort of wealth. I'm not contributing to my retirement because I'm barely able to, at that point, make ends meet. Parents are making huge financial sacrifices to get care for their children. Mayram Bendat says this is a major trend. Bendat is both a psychotherapist and an attorney representing patients in insurance disputes. He says shortages of treatment providers, frequent coverage denials, and a lack of enforcement of insurance laws are major barriers. Debt or going treatment and Medicaid tend to be the most common responses, particularly for getting services for kids and adolescents. State and federal laws require insurance to pay for behavioral care on par with medical treatment. The insurance industry says it complies with those laws, but Bendat says violations are common and often go unenforced. There are so many states that are just doing an awful, awful, awful job of ensuring access to care. 
really, there are some states where you can't even get hold of a live person at a regulator's office. California has some of the strictest mental health parity laws in the country, yet it too is in crisis. Christine Stoner Mertz is CEO of the California Alliance of Child and Family Services. One of our children's hospitals saw something like a 1,700 percent increase in emergency room visits because there just weren't other options for them. Stoner Mertz says some parents never pick their children up from the hospital in order to qualify for Medicaid. They just give up custody. The only way to get those services is if that child becomes a dependent of the state and therefore is automatically eligible for specialty mental health. That kind of desperation sounds familiar and understandable to Colleen O'Donnell. That's something I contemplated a week ago. She says the financial and emotional toll of caring for her mentally ill child has come at the expense of her own mental health. I mean, even now, with things better, it's her and I in the house alone, and at times I feel like suicidal. I feel absolutely hopeless. I have contemplated giving up my child to, to survive myself. O'Donnell recently started working as a school nurse again for the money and for her sanity. But she says she must ensure not to work so much that she loses eligibility for Medicaid. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Ahead on Morning Edition, there are signs that Iran is struggling with violent protests inside prisons by dissidents and political detainees. It's 7.30. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Ukrainian officials say at least three people in the capital were killed by Russia's latest attacks. Drones equipped with explosives struck numerous buildings in Kyiv today, leaving piles of debris. The mayor of Kyiv, Vitaly Klitschko, says Russia's attacks on civilians are an act of terror and what he calls the true face of Moscow's war in Ukraine. The Russians need Ukraine without Ukrainians, and that's why they killed civilian people. Russian attacks also damaged power lines connected to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in southern Ukraine. British Finance Minister Jeremy Hunt says the British government will reverse nearly all of the tax cuts announced by Prime Minister Liz Truss. As Villa Marx reports, Hunt will provide details to Parliament later today. Hunt has brought forward plans to detail the UK government's economic program by two weeks after a weekend of talks with Prime Minister Liz Truss. She had felt forced to fire his predecessor, who'd originally scheduled this announcement as late as the end of November. The pound's sustained weakness and continued high costs of government borrowing on the financial markets meant the government clearly felt pressured to announce its intentions as soon as possible. 
Truss had already junked at least two major elements of her proposals to reduce Britain's high tax burden, and her new finance chief Hunt has acknowledged further tax rises may be necessary to balance Britain's books. For NPR News, I'm Willem Marks. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Teachers in two school districts are going on strike. Haverhill and Malden won't have school today because their unions and district officials failed to reach an agreement over the weekend. The Haverhill Education Association and Malden Education Association are advocating for higher wages and more staffing. Negotiations will pick back up for the Haverhill District later this morning. Boston police are investigating a shooting that left a woman dead. Two other people were seriously injured in the shooting last night in Dorchester. That comes after a string of violent incidents in the city. Last week, two boys were shot in Roxbury, leaving a 14-year-old dead. Community leaders tell the Boston Globe that more needs to be done about crime in greater Boston. There could be key steps made this week to decide the future of horse racing in the state. The Gaming Commission will hold a hearing today on whether to allow racing next year at Plain Ridge Park. The track in Plainville has been the only track with live racing in the state since 2019. Tomorrow, it'll hold a meeting on the possibility of bringing racing to the central mass town of Hardwick. There's a push to bring racing there, although as of right now, the track where it would be held hasn't been built. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New England Innovation Academy, preparing students through innovation, entrepreneurship, and human-centered design. Open house October 20th, neiacademy.org. Patriots quarterback Bailey Zappi threw a pair of touchdown passes yesterday against the Browns. New England beat Cleveland 38-15 on the road. The Pats' record is now 3-3. They'll host the Chicago Bears next Monday. Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins face the Florida Panthers. And in your forecast, overcast skies this morning will probably give way to rain this afternoon. Temperatures will be in the low 60s. Tonight, those fall to the low 50s. Showers overnight and tomorrow, they'll likely continue into the early afternoon will be right around 60. Sunny and upper 50s on Wednesday. It's 50 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Fidelity, with Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Rachel Martin in Washington, D.C. A fire at Iran's notorious Avin prison has killed at least eight people. That's according to the state news agency there. The fire started over the weekend. Video posted online shows several blazes, people screaming, gunfire. The prison is on the outskirts of the capital city, Tehran, and holds hundreds of dissidents and political prisoners, including American nationals and protesters who've been arrested during the recent anti-government demonstrations over women's rights. NPR's Peter Kenyon has been following all this and joins us now from Istanbul. Hi, Peter. Hi, Rachel. What have we learned has happened at the prison this far? 
Well, we still don't have confirmation of exactly how the fire started. Uh, the Ernest A. News Agency uh, is reporting uh, that the head of Iran's state-run High Council for Human Rights paid a visit to the scorched prison ward. Uh, he's quoted as repeating the government version of what happened. Uh, he said, quote, thugs and prisoners convicted of violent crimes had clashed with prison guards. Uh, but then he added that the unrest was over. He said on Twitter that, quote, calm has been restored in Avin prison and the situation is under full control. Now, his reference to thugs and violent prisoners suggests that Iran is keen to blame the unrest on certain types of inmates and, and avoid any mention of the political prisoners and anti-government activists you mentioned uh, who are also incarcerated there. And he made no mention of the two Americans being held, although their families reportedly say they're okay. So this fire happened as these protests have continued around Iran, right? They've been going on for mm -hmm. weeks. What are Iranian leaders saying about them at this point? Well, they are generally blaming outside enemies, in particular the U.S. Uh, President Ibrahim Raisi recalled that the Islamic Republic's founder, Ayatollah Khomeini, had called the United States the great evil, sometimes translated as the great Satan. Uh, Raisi added that America, quote, feels angry with any act of innovation in Iran while being happy with the problems and insecurities in the country. Uh, interestingly, though, he also cited the need uh, for, quote, effective measures to solve the problems of the people so as to neutralize these plots hatched by enemies. Uh, mm. That seems to suggest uh, that Tehran does recognize at some level that these widespread public protests uh, the world's been watching for weeks now are a sign of deep public unhappiness with many political and social restrictions. And again, they're being led by Iranian women. And they face perhaps the most restrictions of all. Women are videoed removing their headscarves, sometimes burning them inside of security forces, demanding the freedom to live their lives without these band-aids. Yeah. The protest started with women uh, protesting the death of a 22-year-old, right? A 22-year-old mm -hmm. young woman who died in police custody. Can you remind us the details of that story? Uh, sure. Masa Amini, a young woman from Iran's Kurdish minority, uh, was detained for allegedly improper attire by the security forces known as Iran's morality police. She died three days later. Her family rejected the official explanation uh, that she had fainted and died of natural causes, saying there was evidence she was beaten in police custody, which the government denies. And it's important to point out here that Amini's alleged offense, showing too much hair under her hijab, is something large numbers of Iranian women do every day. And they've been doing it for some time. And that makes these actions by the police uh, all the more shocking to a lot of Iranians. Yeah, I've seen these videos circulating of groups of women just walking in Iran with no headscarf, which is in mm. itself such a brave and risky act. How yeah. is the U.S. absorbing all this? How's the Biden administration responding? Well, President Joe Biden has already commented. He said the U.S. stands with Iranian women. He said, quote, Iran has to end the violence against its own citizens uh, who are simply exercising their fundamental rights. Uh, that prompted Iran's President Raisi to respond by blaming Biden for inciting, quote, chaos, terror and destruction in Iran. Um, as to how else uh, the U.S. and Western countries could respond, uh, the EU is reportedly considering blacklisting Iran's morality police, uh, among other sanctions. And, and we have to note, Iran is long used to Western sanctions. They've been being laid on for years. Uh, some officials seem to take pride in the country's ability to carry on despite them. Peter, you've been watching Iran for a very long time. Do these protests in this moment feel different to you? 
Well, certainly they are huge, the biggest ones in more than a decade, uh, and they involve a very broad sweep of the Iranian public, and, and so that certainly uh, has to be alarming to, to some in the government. NPR's Peter Kenyon reporting from Istanbul. Thank you so much, Peter. Thanks, Rachel. What is the U.S. willing to do to support the protest movement in Iran? Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with several women activists of Iranian descent on Friday to hear their views. Here's NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says there have been remarkable displays of courage by women in Iran. They've been protesting ever since a 22-year-old woman was allegedly beaten to death by Iran's morality police. We've worked to support those who are standing for their fundamental freedoms despite the efforts of the regime to deny them the ability to assemble, uh, to uh, speak freely, uh, to communicate with each other. Blinken invited five women activists to the State Department Friday to talk about ways the U.S. can help. He was joined by his deputy and other high-ranking officials. Iranian-American writer Roya Hakakian says she told Blinken that this movement in Iran isn't just about demanding reforms, it's about regime change. And I think what's really important is for America to realize that the Iranian people want their regime to go. Uh, all we have to do is provide them with all kinds of support um, that would strengthen the hands of the people against the tyrants that they have to overthrow. She's not talking about weapons, and Iranian-Americans have a wide range of views on what the U.S. should do to help. She says Iranians need free Internet access and other ways to communicate. We meet in the lobby at the State Department. She says she found Blinken to be open to ideas. Hakakian says she also encouraged U.S. diplomat Robert Malley, who was in the meeting, to pause talks aimed at reviving a nuclear deal with Iran. So I personally apologize to him because I assume this is his baby. But the most awful thing we, the United States can possibly do at the moment is to sit beside the very people who are shooting at the demonstrators, peaceful demonstrators on the streets uh, and seem to be shaking their hands or be identified with them. The Biden administration says it can work on human rights while also seeking a deal that stops Iran from developing nuclear weapons. But State Department spokesman Ned Price says no deal is imminent, and that's not the focus right now. The focus, he says, is shining a spotlight on the bravery of Iranian protesters and finding ways to support them. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, why some states and community colleges are offering free courses for students who want to learn skilled trades. And in our next hour, indigenous Mexican immigrants are among those leading ongoing protests over the leaked audio of the former L.A. City Council president making racist comments. In your forecast, patchy fog and cloudy skies this morning, showers this afternoon. Temperatures will rise to the low 60s tonight. 50s, rain likely overnight and tomorrow morning. Temperatures will again top out in the low 60s. We dry up on Wednesday for a sunny day in the upper 50s. Right now, it's 50 degrees in Boston at 743.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. The Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage. More at themusicemporium.com. And the MIT Museum, completely reimagined and now open in its new location in Kendall Square. Curious? Now in business news, mortgage rates have doubled in the past year and are now hovering right around 7%. But it's not all bad news for prospective home buyers. Don Ruffini is president of the Massachusetts Association of Realtors. She says there are more homes on the market today compared to last month. We had a single-family listing increase by 8.5% and condos increased by 43%. Those numbers sound a little skewed just given the fact that we had a huge decline in condo listings the month before. Median sales prices fell about 4% from September. Single-family homes dropped to $570,000 and condos to $480,000. Cambridge-based Inari Agriculture has secured its latest round of funding for product development. The $124 million is expected to go toward developing more efficient seeds. The company's CEO tells the Boston Business Journal she isn't worrying about whether Inari will stay private or go public. It's 745. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetics therapies teams are using innovative thinking to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Rachel Martin. Young workers without a high school diploma are the most likely to switch jobs these days. Getting a professional credential of some kind can help them achieve higher pay and more stability. Alexander Starr reports on a New York program that offers those courses for free. A little more than a dozen men sit in a basement classroom in Harlem. They are studying Plumbing One at LaGuardia Community College. In the front of the room, a student demonstrates how to cut a pipe. Stefan St. Louis joins the applause. He arrived in the United States from Haiti as a teenager almost two decades ago. He first enrolled in community college when he was 18. His mom, who worked as a home health aide, paid for it. My mom was working like two jobs. She was working like seven days. So I wanted something fast. You know, I wanted to make money to help my mom around with the bills. A friend told him he could get hired at McDonald's. He left school and soon was working more than full-time. I worked there for a while, and I was also working at the airport, at JFK. So I used to do two jobs, you know, for seven days, no break. His pay never topped $17 an hour. He wanted to go back to school to do a short course that could get him out of the cycle of service jobs. He didn't have the money for it, though. Then, a friend told him about a program at LaGuardia that would allow him to study a trade, like plumbing, for free. You know, you only get this opportunity once in a lifetime. 
So that's why I wanted to do it. It is unusual. States like Florida and Virginia offer financial support to students earning certifications, but they don't give full rides. Kenneth Adams is president of LaGuardia Community College. He raised money from New York City's philanthropic organizations by pointing to the city's huge job loss after COVID struck. And so in the spring of 2020, think about it, the city lost a million jobs. And those were held for the most part, by uh, immigrants, people of color. LaGuardia ended up raising $15 million to offer scholarships like the one Stefan St. Louis is on. Adam says he's very typical. We're trying to attract students who want to go in a new direction and move from hospitality to healthcare. And there are jobs for people studying for a certification in the skilled trades. Madeline Schmidt has hired two LaGuardia-trained plumbers for her company, Long Island Clean Water Service. She wishes there were more of them. If you can work with your hands, whether it's electricians or plumbers, you have it made for your future. The federal infrastructure bill will create more of these kinds of jobs. Tony Carnevale is director of the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce. The infrastructure bill is going to create a lot of good jobs. The estimates are between two and seven million jobs for high school graduates who get training. Now, for the most part, these jobs don't pay as much as positions that require a bachelor's degree. But people with some post-secondary education do see a financial payoff. Their lifetime earnings are almost 20% higher than for people with just a high school diploma. At this point, the federal government doesn't provide much financial support to students who want to pursue a skilled trade. But Carnevale believes that will change. We've come to the point where there's now bipartisan support for training. The votes are there. The earliest that kind of bill could pass, though, is in the next Congress, after the midterms. For NPR News, I'm Alexandra Starr. This is NPR News. There's another hour coming up here on Morning Edition. And later today at 11 is Radio Boston. And Tiziana Deering is here to tell us what's on deck. Good morning, Tiziana. Good morning on this Monday, Rupa. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. So we've got a full range of stuff for you on the show today. We've been having some public conversations over the last few weeks about concerns about violence Mm -hmm. uh, against young men in the city of Boston. Mm -hmm. We're looking at a program called Youth Connect that places clinical social workers in station houses so that when kids come in contact with the juvenile justice system, they can immediately start providing, offering families clinical support, casework support, really high-impact stuff. Families tend to really welcome it, and it allows that uh, therapist to provide mental health supports and reach out to the whole family. That's excellent. It's so important to talk about solutions. What else you got going on? Exactly. And I want to hit that solutions thing again. And then we will, for on the fun side, we're going to do a sports roundup. Uh, really interesting Patriots game yesterday mm-hmm. with uh, Bailey Zappi. But also, it's Celtics time. It's Bruins time. So we're going to do a fall pro sports primer. All right. Sounds good. Thank oh, I you think so much. Thanks, Rupa. All right. That's Radio Boston today at 11 and 3. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, 
Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. Political analysts call the Hispanic vote a sleeping giant. Most still vote Democratic, but the GOP is gaining ground among people like this Nevada voter. I looked at my mom and I told her, we're in the wrong party. We're Republican because everything just checked off with the way I was raised. It was very conservative. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. We'll listen to Hispanic voters from across the country on point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The writer Anand Girdadas says he needed to persuade himself that there's still some point in persuasion. I think if you look at our political debate, it's so easy to be fatalistic for good reason. It just feels like people are immovable. Girdadas is a journalist with definite political views. One of his books was about inequality, how wealthy elites lock in their gains. Now he's writing about how to change the system, which means changing minds, even when it doesn't seem worth the effort. What became very clear to me also is that this kind of contempt and writing each other off is also the road to civil war and the road to political violence. Because once you give up on the idea that you can change minds. You're kind of giving up on the idea of democracy. His book, The Persuaders, profiles people who have not given up. They're activists on the political left who recognize that if they're going to prevail in a democracy, they need to build political support. The most powerful example for me was this movement called Deep Canvassing, going door to door in Arizona to change minds on immigration. Arizona is one of the fastest browning states in this country, going through enormous demographic change, faster than the country on average. And instead of spending three minutes and giving someone a flyer, you try to spend 30 or 40 minutes at one door talking to people and listening to them, more importantly, about why they feel the way they do. And Steve, this is so counterintuitive for our culture today, right? Because there's, we, we live in a, a culture in which you feel like you're supposed to call people out for saying all kinds of terrible things. And what these canvassers do, they stand there and they listen. And then, having built a certain rapport of trust and relationship, they try to say, hey, but do you know any immigrants? Do the immigrants you know square with the view you gave me at the beginning? Or have you ever felt scorned and shut out because of factors beyond your control? People have epiphanies at the door. This is something I didn't think was possible, but I saw it happen. Would the left actually do better to change some of its program in order to have a broader coalition? That's kind of what the Democratic Party has done for a very, very long time. The problem with this approach is that it doesn't necessarily win over converts from the middle, and it certainly leaves your base cold. And what a lot of the persuaders I'm writing about, what they're essentially suggesting is flipping this model on its head. They're arguing for a version of persuasion from the left that is about standing bravely and committedly in your aspirations and your demands, fighting for a, an ambitious version of your values, and at the same time, reaching out through how you communicate it, how you sell it, the frames you're willing to use, making a Christian case for environmental stewardship, you know, maybe naming something like Medicare for All Freedom Care to actually play into deeply held values that Americans across the political spectrum have. The activists Girdadas interviewed included a woman who worked in Kenosha, Wisconsin in 2020. 
More protests are expected tonight in Kenosha, south of Milwaukee. Yesterday, police there shot a black man named Jacob Blake. Violent protests followed the police shooting. Girdadas says amid the chaos, activists tried to come up with messages that went beyond protest against injustice. A wonderful group in Kenosha called Black BLAK developed this way of talking about what they were for, and they threw a rally called Justice for Jacob after an initial rally morning. The second rally was a celebration, the celebration of his life. There was barbecues, there was voter registration, there was a bouncy castle, and, and a beautiful video went viral around the internet. It's much better to say what you are for, to show what you are for, and show that the kind of world you want is more appealing than the world being offered by the other side. But you follow up on a particular example here. Joe Biden, who was then, of course, a presidential candidate, cut an ad around the violent protests in Kenosha in which Joe Biden said, violent protest is itself bad. I want to make it absolutely clear. Rioting is not protesting. Looting is not protesting. Your activist felt that was a terrible thing for Joe Biden to say. Why? I think one of the most profound lessons I learned from Anat Schenker Osorio was that you, we often pay attention to what we are saying in a conversation or a debate, but we are often blind to what conversation we have chosen to have, right? So if someone says to me, immigrants are animals, and I counter, immigrants are not animals. I'm correct that immigrants are not animals. Problem is I have now gotten into a conversation about the animalness of immigrants. That's the wrong conversation for me to be having. Let me concede your point that if you respond all the time to the person who says the outrageous thing, you're fighting on their turf and you may lose the argument just by even having the argument. But in this specific example, you have Joe Biden, who is a Democratic leader wanting to appeal to a broad coalition of people and concludes that people of all races and income strata and everything else probably do not want shops destroyed and downtowns destroyed. And he stands against that. And he concludes that most people would like to have police protection and that defund the police is a very bad slogan. Why was that such bad politics for him to say those things? I don't think anybody was saying he should have said defund the police. And I'm not sure that Anat or anybody else would say there's no way to talk about rioting. But she did say he should not have done this ad condemning rioting. The ad was, was the thesis of the ad was condemning rioting, right? It, like the, the and, and, and the problem is what you do is you, you demoralize your own base, because now it seems to your own base, which in Joe Biden's case was black voters, you, you signal to your base that you are equating protests against injustice with the injustice itself. And it, there's just a lot of research that that just demoralizes your most passionate supporters. Once you talk instead about what is a world in which all of us can thrive, right? Republicans may have a tougher time competing on that turf. And there may be a way to say things about riots or things about nonviolent protest. But I think lecturing people about law and order in that moment, which has happened so often with Democrats, feels like an insecure uh, kind of grasp for the white moderate vote in a way that often doesn't succeed at wooing it and alienates people of color. The latest book by Anand Girdadas is The Persuaders, at the front lines of the fight for hearts, minds, and democracy. Thanks so much. Thank you, Steve.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Rachel Martin. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum with Titus Kafar's Jerome Project, Portraits on Race, Representation, and Mass Incarceration, GardnerMuseum.org. Brimmer and May, a pre-K through 12 all-gender day school in historic Chestnut Hill. Learn more at their open house October 23rd, brimmer.org. And the Boston Philharmonic with Benjamin Zender and pianist Jonathan Biss, Beethoven and Rachmaninoff at Symphony Hall October 19th, bostonphil.org. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Ukraine asked the West for more air defense systems after Russia uses so-called kamikaze drones to target key infrastructure in Ukrainian cities. It's Monday, October 17th. This is WBMR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, an investigation finds that large U.S. coal companies have failed to restore many areas devastated by mining. The law is very clear. Coal companies have to reclaim the land, meaning they have to return it to its original shape, its contours, and they have to plant vegetation like trees and grasses. Also this hour, new British PM Liz Truss is facing increasing criticism for her economic policies. There's been one horror story after another. It's not just about tax cuts for the rich, but about benefit cuts, cuts to public services. Plus, some federal student loan borrowers say they're being excluded from President Biden's student debt relief plan. Clouds then rain today in the 60s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Russia's defense ministry says it launched a massive strike on Ukrainian military and energy infrastructure today. Ukrainian officials say at least three people have been killed in a drone strike in the capital, Kyiv. NPR's Nathan Rott reports air raid sirens are sounding across many regions of the country. Kyiv Mayor Vitaly Klitschko said 28 drones were spotted over the city in the morning. Five of them struck in the city center, damaging a residential building, energy infrastructure, and a municipal heating structure that was targeted just a week ago. Tamara Beruashvili lives in front of the building that was struck. Now, she says, again, airstrikes have become common. Russia has launched more than 100 missiles at Ukraine over the last week as Ukrainian troops continue to take back territory in the country's east and south. Nathan Rapp, NPR News, Kyiv. A number of states are holding debates in the run-up to the midterm elections next month. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben reports the candidates are discussing a number of hot topic issues, including abortion. In general, you're seeing a lot of similar arguments from each side of the aisle. For example, on the Democratic side, candidates are talking a lot about abortion, casting their GOP opponents as just way too extreme on the topic. One other interesting thing is that Democrats in many cases seem to feel very comfortable distancing themselves from President Biden and even criticizing him. That's NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben reporting. Tonight in Ohio, Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan will face off against venture capitalist J.D. Vance in their second and final Senate debate. 
The U.S. Department of Education quietly rolled out the application process for its student loan relief plan over the weekend. NPR's Corey Turner reports the rollout was a beta test. Borrowers can fill out the application now, but it won't be processed until the official launch. According to the Education Department, that will be by Halloween at the latest. The application itself is just a few simple questions, and the beta test was meant to work out any bugs in the system before some 40 million borrowers apply. Also, by doing it without any real announcement over the weekend, the department was able to avoid one big crash of borrowers onto its website. The application drops as Republican legal challenges to the Biden administration's debt relief plan have intensified. Multiple lawsuits are all asking judges to stop the cancellation of loans before it starts. Corey Turner, NPR News. Thousands of demonstrators took to the streets in Paris on Sunday to protest rising inflation. The March for Wage Increases and Other Demands was organized by left-wing opponents of the French government. This is NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Teachers in two Massachusetts school districts are on strike today. There's no school today in Haverhill and Malden. Teachers, unions, and district officials in both cities couldn't agree on a contract over the weekend. Deb Jeswaldo is president for the Malden Education Association. She says the district walked away from the bargaining table after failing to agree on wages. But we hope that with maybe a little bit of sleep, the school committee team will get up today and want to schedule a session so we can keep going and get this done for our educators, our, our students, and our community. In Haverhill, negotiations will resume later this morning. A majority of the South American migrants flown to Martha's Vineyard last month are staying in Massachusetts. Immigration advocates tell the Boston Globe those staying here have settled in communities across the eastern part of the state, with four of them even returning to the vineyard. The next step for the migrants is to apply for visas designated for victims of certain crimes. A Texas sheriff is investigating whether the group was illegally flown to the vineyard, which would make them eligible for those visas. The utility Eversource says it's still trying to figure out what caused a power surge in Waltham this weekend. That surge knocked out power to about 3,000 customers on Saturday. It also knocked out some transformers, shorted out appliances, and made traffic lights go dark. Nearly all power has been restored. It is now illegal to feed wildlife intentionally or accidentally in the western Massachusetts town of Great Barrington. Nancy Cohn reports several other communities have adopted similar regulations. The idea is to stop human behavior that draws wildlife, especially bears, to neighborhoods, like putting out food on purpose to get a look, or having unsecured trash cans or plastic dumpsters. Bears break into them by jumping on top. State wildlife biologist Dave Waddle says bears will show up when they smell birdseed or garbage on a screen porch. He suspects that might be what led to incidents in Great Barrington this summer. Bears entered homes, so going through a screen into the living space of the home, so into the kitchen, getting into the fridge. This isn't a ban against bird feeders unless they attract wildlife that threatens public safety. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. It's 8.06. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. The Patriots beat the Browns 38-15 to yesterday in Cleveland. The Pats return home next Monday to play the Chicago Bears. The Bruins will try to extend their winning streak to three games tonight as they host the Florida Panthers. Cloudy this morning with showers likely this afternoon. Temperatures today will be in the lower 60s. Some more showers possible overnight, maybe even a thunderstorm low in the 50s. Morning showers possible tomorrow, otherwise cloudy in the lower 60s. It's 51 degrees in Boston at 807. WBUR supporters include Morgan Stanley with their podcast, Thoughts on the Market, offering concise takes on current events and their implications for financial markets. Three minutes an episode, five times a week. Thoughts on the Market. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Rachel Martin in Washington, D.C. Good morning. What can a meeting in China tell us about the direction of the second largest economy in the world? The ruling Communist Party there is holding its 20th Party Congress this week. This meeting will set the tone for policy for the coming years, reshuffle senior officials, and very likely it will give leader Xi Jinping another five years at the helm. NPR's John Ruich joins us now from Beijing, where he is following all of this. Good morning, John. Good morning. What's this gathering all about? Put it in context for us. Well, the party holds congresses like this once every five years. So for this one, there's about 2,300 delegates picked from around the country who've come into town. And they're here for a week of meetings and speeches and votes, most of which will take place behind closed doors. Uh, These congresses are seen by outsiders as kind of ceremonial, something like political theater, because the major outcomes are negotiated in secret and in advance by party's power brokers. Mm. Uh, The big thing that people watch at party congresses like this are the personnel moves. And at this one, as you said, um, you know, the big one is that Xi Jinping seems likely to get another term as general secretary of the party. That's the most powerful political position in China. Uh, And this will be his third term in that role. He's already served 10 years. It's a reversal of recent precedent for just two terms. uh, So that might be a big deal. Beyond that, you know, it'll be key to watch who among the other top leaders retires and who gets promoted. Those will potentially be signals about how much power she actually has as he embarks on his second decade as China's top leader. He's had a tough go of it, though, as of late, right? I mean, his zero COVID policy has weakened the Chinese economy. Relations with the U.S. are strained, to say the least. Is that going to have, are those things going to have any bearing on the meeting and in and, and his future? Yeah, right. Well, also remember, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, uh, you know, met and declared that the China-Russia relationship has no limits right before the invasion of Ukraine which is arguably a risky look for China on the global stage. Look, these things, you know, are perhaps vulnerabilities for Xi on some level. But, you know, in the past decade, he's shown that he's not one to back down in the face of uh, challenges. He's amassed also so much power and control within the party that it may not matter much. I mean, take COVID policy, for instance. It's hurting the economy. I've talked with countless people here who are sick of it. But in a speech yesterday, she defended it. Um, I asked Joseph Terigian about all this ahead of the Congress. He's an expert on Chinese politics at American University. And he says it's very likely that within sort of the top ranks of the Chinese leadership, people agree with Xi on things like the idea that the Western powers are bent on preventing China's rise or that the COVID policy is working. But even if there were lots of people who did subscribe to the narrative that Xi Jinping is is a failure, 
the Chinese Communist Party is not a popularity contest. In other words, it's a top-down, leader-friendly system. Even if there are people out there who are quietly critical of Xi, it doesn't amount to much. Top officials don't usually get voted out. So if Xi is likely to get another term, is he going to be emboldened to make big changes of any kind? He may be emboldened. I mean, analysts expect that we will see more of the same in terms of policy. His speech yesterday at the start of the Congress talked about all the great things that happened during the past 10 years, which is a time when he, of course, was in charge, all the challenges that the party overcame. And that suggests that there'll be a continuation of his strongman approach. I mean, in terms of sort of next steps here, uh, at the end of the Congress, there will be a new central committee. That's the top 200 or so officials in the country. Uh, and then next Sunday, the leaders at the very top, a group called the Politburo Standing Committee, which is now seven men, will walk out from behind a screen onto a stage. And that's when we'll know if Xi Jinping is the new boss or is the boss again and who's around him to help him lead the country. NPR's John Ruich from Beijing. Thank you. You bet, Rachel. It has been a rough six weeks for British Prime Minister Liz Truss. Since she came into power last month, her government has reversed course more than once on major economic and tax proposals. Those plans shocked markets and sent investors fleeing. And her brand new finance minister, Jeremy Hunt, has announced an even greater course reversal. That was in an attempt to reassure those same financial markets. It seems initially, at least, to have calmed the turmoil in the markets. But to make sense of all of this and to explain the potential implications, we're joined by London-based journalist Villa Marks. Willem, first of all, what has been announced today? Well, just a bit of context today. Last month, Truss and her first finance minister, Kwasi Kwarteng, unveiled a series of tax proposals and spending plans that they said were designed to kickstart Britain's economy. They were released without independent analysis of their funding details, and investors got worried they'd add up to many more billions in government borrowing and thus greater public debt. The value of the pound fell to a historic low. The costs for the government to borrow money it needed skyrocketed as well. And so what Truss's new finance ministers announced is that the basic rate of income tax will not drop, that plans to cap people's energy prices will no longer stay in place for two years, but only for six months. This effectively means around three quarters of Truss's planned tax cuts, which were the basis, don't forget, for her entire leadership campaign, are now going to be dropped. OK, now, did she get at least a vote of confidence from the markets uh, when they opened this morning? Well, I'm not sure you could say that she did, but maybe Jeremy Hunt did just three days into his new job. He spent the weekend in reassurance mode doing a series of interviews. Today, he said that it was simply not the right approach to borrow money in order to cut taxes. And that, that indeed has been a plank of the conservative approach over the last 12 years in government. In terms of the reaction on the markets, the pound did strengthen pretty significantly over the course of the day. The stock market in Britain has risen. The cost of borrowing for the government itself in the form of government bond yields, that has fallen and that may mean there's less pressure next month for the Bank of England to raise interest rates. Those two metrics really matter, government borrowing costs and interest rates, because they're the main drivers for mortgage costs in Britain, where we have a lot of variable rate mortgages. Those have risen hugely over the past few weeks, and that's been a major reason for discontent in Truss's Conservative Party. So I'm going to squeeze three questions in one, Willem. Uh, the Conservative Party, does it want to keep Truss as its leader? How's it faring in the polls? And uh, what has all of this done to the UK's image abroad? Well, let's start with the, the lengthy summer campaign to replace Boris Johnson. Truss never once commanded majority support from her own legislators in Parliament. Already, several of them, unsurprisingly, have publicly said she should resign. She's holding meetings all today with ministers and members of Parliament to try and shore up her support. The Conservative Party's polling numbers, they've gone through the floor thanks to her handling of the economy since she took office. The overall gap between Conservatives and their opponents' Labour is widened to 30% in favour of Labour 
with Iran two years to the next general election. You can imagine that's creating a lot of concern among party legislators because they may be the ones that lose their parliamentary seats. And then finally to that last question, we've heard everyone from the Canadian former Bank of England governor, the German ambassador to London, even President Biden expressing their dismay at Truss's original tax plans. That no doubt has added even greater pressure on her to reverse course, as she now seems to have done. And the question remaining for many in Britain is whether this sudden change of direction will be enough to salvage her own position. All right, that's journalist uh, Villa Marx in London. Thanks a lot. Thanks, A. Over the weekend, hundreds of protesters marched to Los Angeles City Hall. Most were indigenous immigrants from the southern Mexican state of Oaxaca. They're angry over racist comments that the former president of the city council, Nuri Martinez, made denigrating their community. Her offensive remarks were captured on a secretly recorded conversation that Martinez had with two other Latino council members. Martinez has since resigned, but protesters want the other two to step down as well. Here's NPR's Adrian Florido. At the front of the march, a Oaxacan brass band led the way. More than a thousand people marched, most of them Oaxacan immigrants or their LA-born children and grandchildren. Out with the racists, they shouted. This is Clara Montella. I'm here to protest the racist comments from our elected representatives, she said. They are unacceptable. On the secretly recorded tape that set off a political implosion last week, then-Council President Nuri Martinez shocked the city with how casually she used racist language to talk about black people and indigenous Oaxacans. She called Oaxacans short, dark, and ugly. At the march, Iraiz León carried a sign that read, Shorts that and very beautiful. <laughs> She switched to Spanish to better express herself. She called us short and ugly, Leon said, but these short, ugly people contribute a lot to their salaries. This scandal has forced a reckoning within LA's Latino communities that many people have thought long overdue. Indigenous immigrants from Latin America have long faced racism from other Latinos, but it's something rarely talked about. Nancy Luis, the daughter of Oaxacan immigrants, said discrimination from fellow Latinos always hurts, but more so in this case because it came from three of the most powerful Latinos in the city. It's unfortunately something we've learned to endure. It did not surprise me, but it, it was extremely hurtful and triggering to hear that at like a political level. But we're here to fight against that today. Karina Marcial said hearing the tape brought back painful childhood memories. I used to get people telling me like, oh, you're so dark. Why are you so dark? Those questions from her Mexican classmates, she said, filled her with insecurity. As I grew up, I would kind of always like tell my classmates, oh, I'm just Mexican, but I would never want to say where my parents are from. I would feel like I'm ashamed of my parents. I'm ashamed because they're not as tall as other parents. They're not as light as other people. Marcial is no longer ashamed. As she marched to City Hall, she carried a small sign that said, Proud to be Indigenous. Adrian Florido, NPR News, Los Angeles.
Coming up later today on All Things Considered, we'll tell you why the nation's biggest orchestras are playing more music composed by women. To listen, ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, as the midterm elections quickly approach, young voters say they are far more motivated by the issue of abortion access than they are by student debt relief. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson's On Beckett. Bill Irwin's On Beckett, running at the Paramount Theater in Boston, October 26th through 30th. Get tickets at artsemerson.org. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Informed communities, essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org. And AE Events. Design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. I'm Peter O'Dowd. Susan Rogers is a longtime record producer who's worked with Prince and Bare Naked Ladies. She's also a neuroscientist. Your brain wants something. It's craving a certain kind of treat. And it knows from past experience the records in your playlist that are going to deliver that particular treat. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Patchy fog and cloudy this morning with a high near 62. This afternoon, showers are likely. Tonight, temperatures fall to a low around 55. Rain overnight, then tomorrow, showers likely again and a high near 61. Sunny on Wednesday with a high near 58. Right now, it's 51 degrees in Boston. Today on Fresh Air, a conversation with Chelsea Manning. She's been criticized by some for leaking more than 700,000 classified military documents. She's been praised by others for fighting for transparency. We'll hear from her today at 2 on Fresh Air. Manning will also be at WBUR City Space next Monday. Get tickets to that at WBUR.org slash events. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Orion Pictures, presenting Till, based on the true story of Mamie Till Mobley's fight for justice for her son, Emmett Till, starring Danielle Deadweiler, now playing in select theaters, everywhere October 28th. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals, Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Rachel Martin. It's been almost two months since President Biden announced his plan to forgive some student loan debt, which was a campaign pledge to younger voters. Is it enough to get them to show up to the polls and vote for Democrats in the upcoming midterm elections? Here's NPR's Elena Moore. 
When Erin Moore started college, she knew she'd take on student debt. But years later, at 25, making loan payments feels much more within her reach. She qualifies for Biden's student debt forgiveness plan. So that actually will make it feasible for me to pay my loans, which is so much more than I ever thought I was going to be able to do. But when Moore, who's now a teacher in Philadelphia, thinks about why she's voting in the midterms, it's not because of student loans. I went into school as an undergrad expecting to never pay off my student loan debt. So this is just extra, but the women's right to choose directly affects me and my family and people I care about. In other words, she's voting to protect abortion access. Young people may want student loan forgiveness, but looming over this election is the reversal of Roe v. Wade. The climate in the country really scares me, to be honest. That's 25-year-old Shannon Thomas, Moore's girlfriend. She has federal student loans of her own. She's also a labor and delivery nurse. I worry about my patients and I worry about my job and what the future of my job looks like if we don't get protection for women's right to choose in this state. To political organizers focused on engaging young voters, protecting access to reproductive care has become essential to their mobilizing efforts. And it's not to say that other issues are not important, but when you've had a constitutional protected right for so many decades taken away, that impacts so many people in this country. It has to be number one priority. That's Dakota Hall, the executive director of Alliance for Youth Action, which advocates for progressive policy. And ensuring that we get that done doesn't mean we still don't care about passing environmental deals or student loan debt or looking at like the economy broadly. And like we also care about that. But we know right now what's on the line in this moment. But that doesn't mean student debt isn't on that line, too. And for some advocates, they want Biden to go even further. I think 10,000 is kind of like a, here, we're going to give this to you before midterm, so you turn out to vote. But I think it's kind of like, we still need more. That's Kyra Mitchell, a 23-year-old Michigan voter who's a youth board member of the NAACP. She also has federal student debt and says the issue has stayed a core priority within her organization, given the impact student debt has on Black borrowers. Student debt cancellation, Mitchell says, could have a long-term impact way beyond student loans. The racial wealth gap that we have is also influencing a lot of reproductive access and things like that. And so if we can close one gap, we can also influence this other thing and have like a domino effect. To Santiago Mayer, the executive director of Voters of Tomorrow, both student debt relief and abortion access are issues that can have similar messaging. And that message is Republicans want to take away your rights. It all ties together into this basic message of youth rights and how young people deserve to be able to enjoy their lives in the same sort of way that their parents or grandparents were able to. And young people feel that. Since Roe was overturned, voter registration has increased among younger voters, notably younger women. That's according to Tom Bonnier, the CEO of Target Smart, a Democratic-leaning data firm. Historically, you see voters being more energized in an oppositional sense. It generally tends to organize voters. And to the extent that there's a flip side of that coin, it's generally voters being motivated to protect something. But as the White House gets ready to roll out their forgiveness plan, some conservative states have challenged them in court. And to Mayer, that could change mobilizing efforts too. Young people like it when the government acts and listens to them. And if there's one thing young people do not like is the government doing something and then the court taking it away. 
So young organizers have major issues mobilizing their generation. Now, they just have to vote. Elena Moore, NPR News. Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland was in South Dakota over the weekend to hear more stories from Native American elders about the abuse they experienced at Indian boarding schools. Holland is traveling the country to document the abuse that occurred in schools that were run or supported by the federal government. Here's South Dakota Public Broadcasting's Lee Strubinger. 78-year-old Rosalie Quickbear attended one of the 31 boarding schools located in South Dakota. The Sachangu Lakota describes being powdered with the pesticide DDT, spending weeks with an untreated broken leg, and getting locked in a dark cellar for days. Quickbear says her experience as a child, as well as other boarding school survivors, was a real-life horror story. That's how we grew up. That's why we're like we are. Quickbear says her experience still affects her. I thought there was no God. Just torture and hatred. Sometimes I am, I'm still to this day, I'm quiet, I'm off, away from people. Because I still can't really feel that love that we're supposed to know as a human being. Quickbear says she spends every day working on understanding love. One boarding school survivor described getting beaten for stashing half an apple in his pocket. Dwayne Hollowhorn Bear says a bishop paddled him 50 times on his bare bottom. He knocked me out with the pain and drugged me into the dormitory. I don't know what else he did to me. Another survivor says every boarding school story is similar. Cheryl Angel also spoke. We were treated inhumanely. It's stories like these the Department of Interior is collecting as part of the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative. Deb Holland is the first Indigenous woman to lead the Interior Department, which helped carry out the boarding school mission. She says the year-long tour is one step among many. That we will take to strengthen and rebuild the bonds within Native communities that the Federal Indian Boarding School policies set out to break. Officials have not said what comes next. The initiative hopes to identify marked and unmarked burial sites across the boarding school system and also allow for elders to be heard. For NPR News, I'm Lee Strubinger in Mission, South Dakota. This is NPR News. This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. Up next, an investigation finds that large U.S. coal companies are using bankruptcy and asset transfers to avoid restoring former mining sites. It's 830. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Russia has been striking more areas of Ukraine today with drones and missiles. At least three people were killed in Kyiv when residential buildings and power facilities were hit. Ukraine says more than 40 Russian drones were deployed in these latest attacks. They say most were taken out by Ukrainian air defenses. Here's White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby. President Biden has been crystal clear. We're going to continue to support Ukraine for as long as it takes. Kirby was speaking to NPR's Morning Edition. The death toll in Nigeria from flooding has risen to at least 600. 
As Ishma Fundiqua reports, homes and farmland have been inundated with water during this year's rainy season. Nigeria's Minister of Humanitarian Affairs, Sadia Uma Farouk, has called on local authorities to move people from at-risk areas. She said despite early warnings, state governments had not prepared for the floods. The UN has identified Nigeria as one of six countries facing catastrophic levels of hunger. Nigeria is prone to flooding, but government officials say the ongoing floods, which have hit 31 of the country's 36 states, including Abuja, the capital, are the worst in a decade. They blame climate change for the unusually heavy rains. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Teachers are on strike today in Malden and Haverhill. Classes are canceled for the day in both cities. One key issue in contract talks in both districts is teacher pay. WBR's Max Larkin joins us now from Malden High School. What's going on there, Max? Yeah, a picket is making its way up and down the block on Salem Street. Um, You've got teachers holding signs, kind of the conventional picket line scene, and getting chants and honks going, as you might hear in the background. Um, I spoke to the director of STEM education, Douglas Dias, who explained that a handful of um, teachers, really up to 100, have left the district uh, to find better jobs, better paying jobs elsewhere. Salary is a big sticking point in the negotiations. You hear that cut. We've lost too many educators to other districts that can and have been able to afford to pay teachers a better rate. And to see uh, too many of our teachers going off into the suburbs and getting more pay is disappointing and saddening for us because our kids deserve to have those quality educators as much as anybody. Dias noted that this is really one of the most diverse districts in the state or country, um, just evenly split at a a resplendence of different languages. And so he wants the best educators around. Uh, Back to you, Rupa. That's WBUR's Max Larkin, live in Malden. New commuter rail schedules are in effect this morning. The new fall and winter schedule includes hourly service on the Worcester line. Also, the temporary stops. Some trains made at Forest Hills and Oak Grove during the Orange Line shutdown will be made permanent. Boston is hosting a free flu vaccination clinic today. It runs from 1 to 5 this afternoon at City Hall. Walk-ins are welcome. The city's health commissioner, Dr. Basola Ojikutu, is encouraging everyone who is eligible to get their shot. Right now is the optimal time for people to get influenza vaccine. Everybody six months and older uh, should be vaccinated. COVID-19 vaccinations will also be available. Dr. Ojikutu says at a city-run clinic last week, more than 200 people got one or both shots. It's 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental of Massachusetts, knowing that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. Bailey Zappi threw a pair of touchdown passes, and Tyquan Thornton ran in a pair for the Patriots yesterday. The Pats beat the Browns 38-15 in Cleveland. New England returns home next Monday to host Chicago.
The Bruins will be at the Garden tonight to skate with the Florida Panthers. In your forecast, overcast skies this morning will probably give way to rain this afternoon. Temperatures will be in the low 60s. Tonight, those fall into the low 50s. Showers overnight, and then tomorrow they'll likely continue into the early afternoon. We'll be right around 60. Sunny and upper 50s on Wednesday. It's 51 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Over the last decade, the coal industry collapsed, leaving the largest producers bankrupt. This, however, turned out to be an opportunity. Coal companies are legally mandated to restore the torn up land and polluted creeks left behind when mining is done, but the biggest companies shifted the cleanup to others. An investigation by Bloomberg News and NPR shows that many old coal mines have new owners that are not completing the work, so the pollution and damage that used to be the industry's problem may become the public's. Joining us now are Josh Saul and Zach Meider of Bloomberg and NPR's Dave Mistich. We'll start with you, Josh. Uh, This reporting shows that as coal operators went bankrupt, many of them were able to get out of their environmental cleanup responsibilities. Walk us through how this works. The law is very clear. It says that coal companies have to reclaim the land, meaning they have to return it to its original shape, its contours, and they have to plant vegetation like trees and grasses. They have to also stop any flooding when they finish mining. But what we found is that coal companies have gotten really good at using a specific tactic to avoid paying for cleaning up their own messes. What the big publicly traded billion dollar coal companies do is they transfer the old idle coal mines to smaller, private, financially weaker companies. And if those new owners go broke, then nobody is left to do the cleanup work. Wow. So Dave, you and Josh traveled to the heart of Appalachian coal country. Tell us what you saw there. That's right. So we traveled to southern West Virginia and eastern Kentucky, and people there told us about red mine water flooding their homes. We met Gary Van Natter in Mingo County, West Virginia, as he was backing his truck up out of his driveway so he could take some wood back to the store that got damaged by some flooding. It's coming down like a raging river. I've never seen it that bad. It's just getting progressively worse in the past couple of years. Van Natter told us these floods are becoming more frequent, and it's done a lot of damage to his property. Singing the foundation, it's uh, uh, the whole back of the house is dropped on that side. This this uh, two-car garage and two-story is, uh, is sunk. And the effects go beyond just that. People's drinking water and septic tanks get knocked out and ruined. There's so much selenium and acid runoff in streams that it kills or deforms fish and other wildlife. Lots of people talk about how they used to gather firewood or ginseng in an area that now looks like a moonscape, or they used to swim or fish in a river that they're now scared to touch the water. One older man I talked to, mine runoff weakened the floor of his home, and one day he walked into his dining room and fell right through it into the mine water below. He got stuck in his own floor. Wow, that's amazing. Zach Meider of Bloomberg News uh, spent a lot of time looking into this. Zach, can you give us an example of a coal company that's gotten out of these responsibilities? Sure. When the downturn in the industry hit about a decade ago, this company called Alpha had more of these old idle mines than anybody. But now they've been able to get rid of most of them. They handed the biggest chunk, that's about 230 mining permits, 
to a much smaller company called Lexington Coal. Now, Alpha says it's a responsible coal company that complies with all the rules. And they said state regulators signed off on the deal. Alpha handed over a lot of cash to Lexington, too, so that it could clean everything up. Josh, what does this mean for Alpha? And has the smaller company, Lexington, made good on the responsibilities that it's taken on? What it meant was that Alpha could wash its hands of the responsibility to clean up the land, no matter what happened later. The two companies talked about a five-year plan to accelerate reclamation. Well, it's been five years. Lexington hasn't cleaned up many of these mines, and it's unclear if they even have the money to do it. Meanwhile, they're racking up more environmental violations this year than almost any other company in the country. But the deal's worked out great for Alpha. The price of coal has skyrocketed, and the company's stock is up more than 700%. Wow. So, Dave, you actually got the chance to fly over some of these uh, former Alpha mines in West Virginia. What would you take away from that? Really just how pervasive surface mining is in these areas and how many people live next to it. You know, you can't really get a sense of that from the ground, given the topography. And that's even, you know, looking at maps or by using a drone. When you're just a few thousand feet up in the air, you can see it in every direction. It all looks very, very similar. Just flat, barren land that used to be a mountain. And you can tell they're getting some coal out of some of these mines, but some of the mines owned by Lexington have been idle for years. Reclamation should have taken place or should be happening now, and it's just not happening. And, you know, like Josh said, that'd be returning the land to its original contour or planting something like trees or grass. Zach, I guess I can see why the big coal producers like Alpha might want to get rid of all of their old used up mines so they don't have to clean them up. But what about the other side of these deals? I mean, who would take on all those responsibilities? Yeah, so there's a guy named Tom Clark, and he wasn't a coal miner at all. He called himself an environmentalist. And when all these big coal companies started going under, Clark showed up to take their minds off their hands. He had this wacky plan. He was going to save the coal industry and save the planet at the same time. He was going to mine coal and then plant trees to offset their carbon emissions. And so for a while, he's kind of a hero in West Virginia. Oh, well, how did that work out? It was a disaster. Clark ran out of money. He racked up 160 environmental violations. Eventually, a court had to take over his operation. But looking at it from another perspective, that of the big mining companies whose mines he took over, it was kind of a success. One West Virginia official estimated that cleaning up just Clark's mines could cost hundreds of millions of dollars. That's money that the companies that develop those mines will never have to pay. That's Zach Miter and Josh Saul of Bloomberg News and NPR's Dave Mistich. Uh, my thanks to all three of you. You're welcome. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Music fans in Mexico are throwing things at artists, but they aren't getting hurt. In fact, the artists welcome it because the objects are small stuffed toys. Jeanette Hernandez is a freelance culture writer who follows all things in Latin pop culture. It started out what seemed like a joke to actually something that got cut on um, from the Mexican audience to what we're seeing now even here in the U.S. The trend crossed the border and plush toys are soaring onto stages in El Paso, Texas, too. The phenomenon also has made it to Canada, where a plushie struck Lady Gaga in the face during a concert in Toronto. She laughed it off and just danced. This all started last year, apparently when a fan threw a Dr. Simi doll at Norwegian singer Aurora during a festival in Mexico City. She hugged the stuffed mascot, a video went viral, and the rest is history. Dr. Simi is the friendly face of the Mexican generic drug pharmacy chain Farmacia Similares. 
It's basically like a like a huge mascot always outside the door and just promoting this very like likable mascot that's always giving high fives and very friendly to whoever passes by. Now, music fans are altering the Dr. Simi dolls to make them look like their favorite artists, leaving notes on his arms, legs and white coat. So far, the celebrities don't seem bothered by the flying stuffies, but if you are so inspired to hawk one at your favorite singer, don't aim for their heads. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up, we hear from federal student loan borrowers who are being excluded from President Biden's student debt relief plan. Patchy fog and cloudy skies this morning. Showers this afternoon. Temperatures will rise to the low 60s. Tonight, 50s. Rain likely overnight and tomorrow morning. Temperatures will again top out in the low 60s. We dry up on Wednesday for a sunny day in the upper 50s. Right now, it's 51 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans start as low as $0 per month with new benefits like enhanced dental coverage. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. Now in business news, there's good and bad news for Massachusetts homebuyers. Mortgage rates have doubled in the past year, but median sale prices have dropped about 4% compared to the same time last year. The Massachusetts Association of Realtors reports the median price for single-family homes last month dropped to $570,000. Blue Cross Blue Shield Massachusetts is expanding its use of artificial intelligence. It'll allow doctors to quickly see if treatment has been approved by a patient's health insurance. The Boston Business Journal reports using AI shortened review time from nine days to less than one. The chief financial officer at Berkshire Bank has resigned. The Boston-based company cited personal reasons and other career interests for his departure. Berkshire says it's appointing an interim CFO while it conducts a national search. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com slash careers. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. This weekend, many borrowers got their first chance to apply for up to $20,000 in student loan relief from the federal government. But after recent Republican legal challenges, borrowers Chris Tosich and Lisa Thackwell realized their loans no longer qualify for relief. Emotionally, it's like a gut punch. Kind of feels like a, a punch to the gut. NPR's Corey Turner has their story. Lisa Thackwell says she was looking forward to the $10,000 in student loan relief President Biden promised back in August. It would have cut my debt in half. Thackwell and her husband already had plans for that savings. Oh, now we can put some of this money towards our boys' education. 
For borrower Jennifer Newell Davies, I was really counting on having that lower monthly payment to contribute to my mortgage. The problem is they have an old kind of student loan known as a Federal Family Education Loan, or FEL. These loans were issued by banks and state-based lenders who also profited from them, but they were guaranteed by the federal government. Always keep in mind that FEL loans are federal loans, period. Dominique Baker is professor of education policy at Southern Methodist University and says in 2010, the Obama administration shut down the FEL program. But several million borrowers still have these old loans. And Baker says they are precisely the type of borrowers Biden's debt relief plan was meant to help. These borrowers were more likely to attend community colleges, for-profits, HBCUs, and this is fairly old debt. That's why in August, Biden told them, you too can qualify for debt relief. But a few weeks ago, several Republican state attorneys general sued Biden, arguing erasing these old loans would hurt the banks and state-based lenders that still manage them. The day that suit was filed, the Ed Department quietly changed the rules on its website. That's how Chris Tosich realized he and other fell borrowers had suddenly been excluded. When I looked at that, my just stomach dropped. Honestly, I cried a bit when I found out that it might not be forgiven. And that's when I started the petition. Jennifer Newell Davies is gathering signatures from fellow borrowers to make clear this reversal will hurt a lot of people. You know, Republicans aren't stepping out there to help them, but now it feels like Democrats are turning their backs. Court documents show the White House cut these borrowers out to legally protect debt relief for everyone else. And publicly, it said these fell borrowers are a small group, just 2% of the borrowers who could benefit from Biden's plan. When asked about the reversal, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre downplayed its impact. The number of borrowers impacted are, are much smaller. I know there was a number of millions, but it's, yes. actually, it's actually much smaller. How small? Well, it's still enough borrowers to fill Yankee Stadium 14 times, just under 800,000. It makes me so angry. They just continue to say that it's a small group, it's a small group, it's a small group. Again, borrower Chris Tosich. But it's a vulnerable group. They've held debt longer than most, and they've consistently been marginalized. Fell borrowers also didn't qualify for the pandemic pause in interest and repayment for the same reason they're now being excluded from debt relief, because their loans are a vestige of the past, held by outside lenders, but backed by the U.S. government. Corey Turner, NPR News. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Rachel Martin. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. The Marketplace Morning Report looks at whether it's still possible for people to climb up the corporate ladder from an entry-level job to executive. That's coming up. And later today at noon, it's here and now. And Robin Young is here in studio to fill us in on what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Robin. Hi. Good Monday morning to you. And we're going to have all the news, of course. We're going to be in Ukraine, Iran, the state of Georgia. Hot uh, uh, races there ahead of the midterms. And by the way, just a little housekeeping here. I feel like the person who comes on 
does the announcements during homeroom. Uh, but <laughs> tomorrow night at City Space, we're going to have a great free event on the midterms. We're going to have a Harvard Law School professor, Guy Uriel Charles. He'll talk about the infrastructure, what keeps him up at night thinking about voting machines and ballots. Mm. MSNBC host Shermichael Singleton, who will talk about whether the Republican Party, after such a push for ginned up elections, and then historian Jill Lepore, what's at stake if efforts to protect uh, a free and fair election don't work? We'll have that. And then we're going to have uh, Berkeley professor Laura, De- Laura L- no, Berkeley professor Susan Rogers. On um, what you're hearing when you hear music, like this is Lana Del Rey, mm-hmm. her song, This Is What Makes Us Girls. Are you a lyrics person or a music person? It's all about your brain. This is a neurologist who's a musician, was a sound engineer for Prince, and who's now going to talk to us about wh- how we hear music. That is fascinating. Yeah, at noon. Thank you, Robin. That's here and now. Like you said, today at noon, it's 8.51. That's where the beginning of the end began. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Ad Club's Women's Leadership Forum, in person on October 24th. Hear from influential speakers and visionary women driving positive change in the world. Tickets at adclub.org. We've been hearing a lot about the barrier islands devastated by Hurricane Ian in Florida, but the storm also dealt a blow to inland communities, and farmers are hurting as a result. Citrus got beat pretty hard. All of our grapefruit crop is on the ground. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. More on the damage done by Hurricane Ian this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today from 4 to 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Cloudy this afternoon. Showers will likely start mid-afternoon. Sorry, the clouds are this morning. The showers are this afternoon. Temperatures will be in the low 60s. Right now it's 52 degrees in Boston at 852. We'll lead with the latest on the bond and borrowing brouhaha in Britain. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab understands that wealth management is personal. That's why Schwab offers flexible, personalized financial planning crafted for their investors' individual goals. Learn more at schwab.com. I'm David Brancaccio in New York with market players around the world watching. Britain's newest finance minister today reversed more of his government's tax plan that had required levels of borrowing that upended the bond market. He's also going to give less help to consumers to pay for expensive natural gas. The BBC's Darshini David has more from London. It is not even a month since the government unveiled the biggest tax changes in 50 years. Now, more than half of those measures have been scrapped. Gone indefinitely is the lowering of the basic rate of income tax. The changes around the rules of how self-employed workers and dividends are taxed have been ditched. They joined the adjustments to corporation tax and the highest band of income tax on the list of U-turns. In total, the reversals will save the public purse over £30 billion. Up for reassessment too is the help for energy bills past April. While the latest moves help the government get the public finances back on track, more will be needed. Darshini David with our editorial partner, the BBC. Here, S&P futures are up 1.3 percent and Nasdaq futures up 1.6 percent, indicating sharp moves upward when formal trading begins in about half an hour or so. The Wall Street Journal's reporting on a sweeping reorganization on the way at the financial giant Goldman Sachs. 
Investment banking and financial trading would go into one bucket, then asset management plus running the whole portfolio of rich clients, plus it's Marcus Consumer banking would go into bucket number two. There's even a third bucket. The report suggests this is about a new emphasis on operations that earn steady fees rather than businesses where profits fluctuate with market conditions. And Canadians will soon be able to go on Uber Eats to order marijuana delivered right to their homes. The app will trigger the transaction, but a trained delivery person from a third party called Leafy will show up to check ID, age 19 and above, and sobriety. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. And by Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to clients' long-term goals. FisherInvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. This month, for what we call Econ Extra Credit, a mixture of learning and nostalgia for those parts of the retail landscape that have vanished. We're watching the doc called All Things Must Pass, The Rise and Fall of Tower Records. Remember Tower Records? You're like, what's a record? Well, (laughs) even you MP3 folks can learn from what was once a retail giant where you could rise to positions of great authority, starting from the bottom. Virtually everybody in the company started off as a clerk. They become buyers. They become you know, supervisor types in the, in the store. They become assistant managers and then they become managers. So they learn everything they need to learn. And the, the entire development of Tower Records through the entire period of time it existed was just that kind of a thing. That's Tower Records' late founder Russ Solomon speaking in the film. Now let's rest for a moment on this theme of career mobility within organizations. Here to help us is Matthew Bidwell, a professor of management at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. Professor, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So interesting. You watch this film and people who are like stock clerks rise to positions of power, some of them. Would you say that's common at companies? It's not completely unheard of. In a lot of organizations, there's still quite a gap between the top floor and the the highest levels of management. There definitely are cases, I think, in a number of organizations where you see this, but it's not the norm. Now, in this tight labor market that until perhaps recently we've been seeing, there's been a new thinking, really, about taking people you already have and investing in them instead of looking elsewhere for people who may have more formal qualifications. Definitely. When the labor market's fairly depressed, there are a lot of people unemployed. A lot of companies might feel whatever jobs we need to fill, it's going to be very easy to go out and hire somebody in a tight labor market. You discover you might want to hire for a job. That position may be open for a long time, causing you a lot of headaches. And so at that point, organizations do focus much more on okay, can we build a pipeline inside to relieve some of these headaches for us? I mean, I think Most of the evidence is, frankly, even in a looser labor market, this is probably a good idea. Having people who really know the organization well really increases their effectiveness and performance. Plus, you actually end up not having to pay them quite as much as you would if you're hiring on the external labor market. But there is a role, I think, for formal education here. And even if someone starts entry level, at some point, if they're going to end up as CEO, they may need some formal business training. And I know you work in a place that sells MBAs. 
Yeah, what is it that hedge fund managers say about talking one's book or something? Yes, I'm definitely talking my book. Mm -hmm. Yes, formal education, hugely important. Everyone should go to an MBA. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think there are a lot of opportunities for people. I mean, a lot of business schools offer various kinds of part-time programs, part-time MBAs, those sorts of things, exactly catering to these sorts of populations. People who are doing well in their careers don't want to take two years out, but still think that this is important. Even when it comes to undergraduate education, some of these companies will also sponsor its employees to go through undergraduate in certain areas. And so, yes, I think there is definitely the opportunity to provide that education to people at the same time. Matthew Bidwell is a professor of management at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business. Thank you very much. Thank you. One documentary a month touching marketplace themes for Econ Extra Credit. Watching the movie, my team fell down a rabbit hole talking about the very first record CD or download they acquired. My first single is I Want to Hold Your Hand by You Know Who. And for the first album, somebody must have put into my jammy little toddler hands Dave Brubeck's Take 5, which is, may I say, a choice that stands the test of time. Thank you. We'll build a playlist out of your first records, dear listeners. Email them, extracredit at marketplace.org. That's extracredit at marketplace.org. We'll share the results in an Econ Extra Credit newsletter coming up. S&P futures now up 1.2%, Dow futures up 292 points, 1%. I'm David Brancaccio, the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. It'll be cloudy this morning, rainy this afternoon in the low 60s. Temperatures fall to the low 50s tonight. It's 52 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 9 o'clock. The BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series. The L.A. Philharmonic performs Mahler's First Symphony and the Boston premiere of Gabriela Ortiz's Altar de Cuerda, October 23rd at Symphony Hall. Learn more at CelebritySeries.org. Political analysts call the Hispanic vote a sleeping giant. Most still vote Democratic, but the GOP is gaining ground among people like this Nevada voter. I looked at my mom and I told her, we're in the wrong party. We're Republican because everything just checked off with the way I was raised. It was very conservative. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. We'll listen to Hispanic voters from across the country on point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm executive editor for News, Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.